you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Welcome to a special joint broadcast from LAist 89.3 in Southern California and the state of Nevada from KNPR 88.9 in Las Vegas. I'm Larry Mantle, the host of LAist Air Talk. And I'm Joe Shaneman, host of KNPR's State of Nevada. Today, a look at Los Angeles to Las Vegas, the population pipeline. The metro Las Vegas area continues to be a popular destination for folks looking to leave Southern and Northern California. The U.S. Census says that from 2015 to 2019, 250,000 Californians moved to Nevada. That meant a net gain of 123,000 Nevada residents because a lot of Nevadans also moved to California. And according to the online real estate brokerage firm Redfin, at the end of 2023, Vegas is the number two spot that people using their services are moving to. And the majority are coming from Los Angeles. Well, Joe, I'm so excited to hear from listeners in both Southern Nevada and Southern California to share the reasons that they move between the two regions and what drove that decision and what they particularly like about where they live now, what they miss about where they relocated from. We're asking you to call in, whether in Southern Nevada or Southern California. If you're someone who's moved between the two regions, please share with us your experience succinctly, of course. We want to get as many listener calls from both of these large radio markets onto our air in Southern California and the Las Vegas area. The phone number for you to call, 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. If you'd rather email your experience moving between the two regions, you can do that. We're using our AirTalk Southern California email address to simplify. That address is atcomments at laist.com. That's atcomments at laist.com. On those emails, please include your first name, and it's very important to know where you're writing from, whether it's Southern Nevada, Southern California, and specific neighborhoods. So if you're in North Las Vegas, if you're in Henderson, if you're in Pahrump and listening, if you're in Highland Park, wherever you are in the two regions, please let us know the area to which you're listening to this joint broadcast. And in those two regions, the population shift from Southern California to Southern Nevada is nothing new. Reasons vary depending on who you ask. But for a lot of people, it comes back to the cost of living. Home prices in California are rising and taxes are very high compared to other states. Nevada, meanwhile, has no state income tax, and it simply costs less to buy a house here. The median price of a home in Nevada as of November 2023, according to Redfin, was $435,000. In California, it was about $794,000. 
Now, here to talk about some of the reasons why people are moving between California and Nevada, aside from just the housing, but that is a big part of it. We're joined now by UNLV professors who have studied this issue. David DeMore is a political science professor and also serves as the interim executive director of the Lindsay Institute and Brookings Mountain West. Also with us, Michael Green, chair of UNLV's history department. Professors, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Professor DeMore, let me start with you to ask you about the appeal of the Las Vegas area for Southern Californians. We know a lot of its economics, job opportunities. We know that housing costs are significantly lower, although even in in the Vegas area, of course, the price of housing has gone up. What are some of the other factors that appear to be driving the move? I think one of the things we certainly saw during COVID was the opportunity to uh, telecommute. Um, we saw a lot of Southern Californians moving in, and that's when we saw a big spike in our real estate market. So I think just the way that people are adapting to work um, is happening there. We certainly see in our data that there's a lot of industrial jobs being shed in Southern California. A lot of them, unfortunately, ending up in Phoenix, but we're capturing some of those. So you certainly have those sort of um, economic dy- dynamics. And then, of course, there's just a long history of this, right? I mean, one of the things that our colleagues at my colleagues at Brookings found looking at the 2010 census data was there was more age eligible voters in Nevada who were born in California than actually born in Nevada. Wow. That, that's pretty incredible. Uh, what is it about California, uh, Professor, I mean, about Nevada, that Californians, like, aside from the housing prices, I mean, uh, when they, they come here, are they finding things that are making this area more amenable to them? I think there's certainly just the, the the proximity of it makes it easy, right? You look at you know, about 90% or more of Nevada is essentially populated within 40 miles of the California border. So it's very, very proximate. There's certainly a lot of exchange of families, a lot of just exchange of, of work, entertainment, all those kinds of things there. And this has you know, been our lifeblood forever, as Michael can speak to, um, you know, since the founding, right? We've been dependent upon California um, for, for our for our economy, going back to the sort of the mining and up in the north, and then the creation of Las Vegas was originally designed to be a sort of pleasure uh, d- destination for Hollywood. Professor Green, uh, there are cultural differences between the two regions. So as the migration happens and Californians bring some of their attitudes, um, the, the way they like to live their lives, how much of a conflict is that creating between um, the two populations or former you know, distinct populations that are now merging? That can be a little hard to read, but a lot of people around here tend to complain if they've lived in Las Vegas a long time. That, oh, no, the Californians are coming. They're going to bring big government. Uh, they're going to bring taxes and so on and so forth. And mind you, Nevada not having a state income tax is appealing for a lot of people. We're not going to get a state income tax, I think, no matter how many Californians move here. Uh, I think that the movement has benefited us in a way in that there is an old libertarian inclination in Nevada and in Las Vegas, the idea, oh, you're free to gamble, you're free to do the things you want to do. And people do move here and say, well, wait a minute, we we need more parks. Uh, We we need some of these things. Uh, It doesn't mean that that leads to a great expansion necessarily. Uh, It also doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of Las Vegans, I'd say like Dave and me, who think to ourselves, we, we want to do these things anyway and are trying to do them. But I do think that that has loosened things up a little bit ideologically here in southern Nevada. 
And Professor Namora, I wonder if you're seeing that politically. Are, are you seeing that in the political decisions and some of the bills that are coming about through our legislature? Are our representatives from Las Vegas then those from Reno seeking to create bills and laws that create more of the uh, better education, more parks, those types of things that people in California might be more used to. And when they get here, they find they don't have as much of that. And it's a great question. I think there's a couple of sort of political ramifications of this. The first is you clearly see, particularly in the rural counties, a lot of aversion to this, right? That's become sort of one of the taglines. And we go back to the 2018 election um, cycle. That was a, a big sort of mantra of the Republican candidates there is don't make don't make California Nancy Pelosi's playground, that kind of discussion there. So you certainly see that that part of it there. I do think we're sort of observing a little bit of a north-south difference here. I think that's post-COVID, some of the migration from Southern California tends to be more from the Inland Empire and at least a little more conservative. So if you look at the last couple of cycles, uh, the, de- the Republicans have knocked a point off of the Democrats' margins in Clark County, but then they're losing the same margin up in um, the North, right, where you tend to get more migration from the Bay Area and Sacramento. I think you know, a lot of what we're seeing in the in the legislature is really a function of more generational change and the increasing sort of uh, diversification of that legislature. Uh, for a long time and before term limits, it was very sort of very old guard, very much controlled by the northern interests here. And now it's much, much different environment up there. Um, and you clearly see a you know female majority legislature. Every, every cycle gets more diverse there. And I think that's driving a lot of the sort of more liberal policy changes we're seeing in, coming through the legislature. We're talking with a pair of uh, professors in Las Vegas, David Damore, political science professor and interim executive director of the Lindsay Institute in Brookings Mountain West. Michael Green, chair of the history department at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. But we want to hear from you if you've relocated between the two regions, between Southern California and Southern Nevada, going in either direction. What do you like about where you live now? What do you miss about where you're from? Please share your feedback to us so we can personalize what this larger scale experience involves. We're at 866-893-5722. That's the unified call-in number for this special broadcast, 866-893-5722. You can also email your comments about your relocation between the regions at atcomments at LAist. Dot com. That's atcomments at L-A-I-S-T dot com. Please share with us what your experience has been. Larry Mantle with Joe Shaneman. We're the hosts of the two local public affairs call-in programs for Southern Nevada and Southern California, State of Nevada and AirTalk, respectively. Again, that phone number, 866-893-5722. Joe? Yeah, uh, Professor Demore, one more question on the political end of this. A lot of people over the years have said... Yeah, we know a lot of people from California are moving to Nevada, and California is a very strong Democratic state. But aren't those moving to Nevada who are avoiding the high costs and the taxes, aren't they potentially more conservative, more Republican? Are, is that what we're finding, or are we finding that the people, whoever leave California, that the political mix of those people is is equal? Is it about the same? I mean, do you have a feel for that? I think, as I mentioned, I think there's a north-south difference going on right now in this, um, just that we're tend to be getting more migration from those sort of more conservative parts of Southern California. 
um, whereas in, in the north they're not, and I think that's reflecting um, in, mm. in our elections a little bit there. Um, so yeah, and, but I also think you know when you come from another state, and one of the things I think that always fascinates me when I give a talk in Southern Nevada, I ask how many people are born in Southern Nevada and or, or in Nevada, and no right. one raised there. <laughs> um, and so there's an expectation of that there's more government or things work the way that they did in their state there, and when they find out they don't, they're kind of scratch their head regardless of their their, their political ideologies. Uh, let's talk a bit about uh, the migration that's happening from other states. Uh, you've got uh, Arizona, Florida, and Texas among the top five over the last couple of years. You don't hear that complaining in southern Nevada about people from those states, do you, Professor Green? No, you definitely don't. And, of course, I, I think that there just tends to be this reaction, a gut reaction to California. Arizona, do, do you at one time when Arizona really was, for example, talking about SB 1070 and immigration, there tended to be more of a snapback, you might say. But uh, what I like to ask people when they say it's turning into California, which part? <laughs> you know, are, are you talking about the beaches? That would be lovely. <laughs> and so very often, I, I think it's just from a standpoint of very superficial attitudes, and uh, we, we don't have the same attitudes about those other states. Well, and I wonder, you know, California, just because of its size and Texas and Florida are big as well. But California, because of its size, Professor, um, you know, carries some of the baggage of its national influence, resentment over California in some other parts of the country. And that, you know, California particularly has become a progressive state that among those who, who aren't necessarily as collectivist in their thinking look at that more negatively than they do the migration from elsewhere in the country. Almost definitely. And I mean, this this does go to a kind of long-term change in California, notwithstanding that not all of California is progressive or collectivist or whatever term you prefer to use. And uh, there are people who are moving who have nothing to do with any of that. But it, there's an interesting similarity when you think of image, uh, because that's the image of California. And what's the image of Nevada? What is the image of Las Vegas? What happens in Vegas, etc.? cetera? Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting to consider that they're going from one image to another. Again, we want to invite your phone calls, conversation with us as we're doing a joint live broadcast between KNPR in Las Vegas and in Southern California, L.A. is 89.3. We want to hear from you. If you've moved between the two regions of the country, if you used to live in Southern California and you moved to the Las Vegas area, what's your experience been? Do you like the life that you have in Las Vegas better than the one that you had in California? What are the aspects? of it you enjoy most. What are the things you miss about the previous life you had in Southern California? Conversely, if you're someone who's moved from Southern Nevada to Southern California, share with us some of the challenges, perhaps financially, that have come with that, some of the things that you like about your new home in Southern California. We're at 866 893 5722. It's the unified call-in number for both KNPR and LAist 89.3 listeners. 866-893-5722. If you'd prefer to email your comments, you can do that under our unified email address for this simulcast, atcomments 
at laist.com. Laist is L-A-I-S-T dot com. That's A-T comments at laist.com. Larry Mantle of AirTalk on Laist 89.3. Joe Shaneman of KNPR State of Nevada. Joe? Yeah, and we did get a comment, uh, email from Matt in Beverly Hills, who says, and I'm going to address this to the professors, as a current L.A. resident who was born and raised in Nevada, I was wondering if the guests could speak on what the long-term resource outlook outlook is for the state of Nevada. Uh, Professor DeMore? Uh, That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, for get for the um, people in Southern California may not be aware that we're one of the most efficient water users users in the world here. Um, we're use less than well under our three hundred thousand acre feet a year of the of the Colorado River allocation. Whereas Southern California, that's a whole different um, issue there. So I think as we move forward, um, there's a lot of expectation of Southern California coming to the table um, to make to sustain the. Um, the uh, the Colorado River allocations there, so that's obviously the the biggest one um, here is the is the joint sharing of the water, and currently Southern Nevada Water Authority is actually paying um, some of the freight on the cost to do a water uh, reuse facility in Southern California. So we're already sort of working on that together. Yeah, that that's a seven hundred fifty million dollar investment to to help Southern California. I, I think a lot of the questions from Californians might be this, especially those who want to move businesses here. Uh, do you both believe, and we do talk to the Water Authority quite a bit on this program, that there will be enough water in southern Nevada in the future for the growth that we're seeing? We're seeing it in the professional sports industry. We're seeing different enterprises and technologies coming here. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Michael, um, do you want to take that one? Or? Well, I, I am inclined to think that through negotiation, through power plays, and on what Dave said about the efficient use of water here, that there should be enough water. Now, that also kind of depends on the Colorado snowpack. Uh, We don't control climate change uh, or what's happening in other places. But the current trend lines, I think, are good. Yeah, and 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 to add add to Michael's um, point on that, right? Remember, we recycle all indoor water here. So the real problem for us is limiting the water that's that's outside. And then obviously now they're seeing the implementation um, on the air the changes on air conditioning um, for for the for the strip and some of the bigger properties there. That'll make a huge dent, allow us to continue to grow and particularly to to develop some industrial um, increase our industrial output here. Again, uh, we want to invite listeners in both the Las Vegas area and in Southern California to join us to talk about the move between the two regions. If you're someone who's relocated between them, please join us at 866-893-5722. We want to hear from you what that experience has been like. You've seen a lot of change in Las Vegas and in Southern Nevada generally in recent years. Maybe you're someone who moved from California to Vegas a decade or so ago. You've seen your new home change dramatically. What do you like? What do you uh, not so much like about it? 866-893-5722. Or you can email your comments to atcomments at laist.com. Please include where you're contacting us from and your first name. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, Professor Green, uh, and Joe just mentioned this about 
all the sports teams um, that Vegas has now seen thrive, uh, of course, with the Golden Knights hockey team, which has been a smash success at T-Mobile Arena uh, at uh, Legion Stadium. We've seen the Raiders move in and draw crowds from around the country who follow their home team to Vegas to see them on the road. An NBA team will likely be coming in the in the next few years. And of course, the A's are relocating to a South Strip location from uh, Oakland. Professor Green, what, what does all this mean to Las Vegas's sense of itself? I think it means a lot, frankly. Uh, the Golden Knights were the first major franchise. And the timing, in a way, was terrible because they started right at the time of the October 1st massacre on the Strip in 2017. And they went out into the community. They adopted the community, and the community adopted them. And so there was a, to use a term I don't normally like to use, a synergy, a comparison, something that brought them together. Uh, The Raiders... I think, fit in a different way. And I think it has some applicability to what we're talking about. Because lest we forget, the Oakland Raiders spent more than a decade where? In Los Angeles. And you had a fan base there who would then come to Las Vegas to see them. Uh, There's still an Oakland fan base. And the Raiders haven't been adopted in the same way, I'd say. But here's my little comparison for whatever value it may have. Los Angeles did not really feel it was a big league city until it got the Dodgers. True. And when the Dodgers moved to L.A., their legendary announcer, Vin Scully, was asked by the owner, Walter O'Malley, should you root for the Dodgers on the air? That's what they were used to in L.A. And I have to tell you, I'm an L.A. transplant, moved when I was two, run out of town on a rail. (laughs) And... My dad grew up there listening to local announcers who said, you know, we're beating the enemy. Hallelujah. And Scully's response was, there are a lot of people here who are like us, transplants. And when you think about the Raiders, the A's, the potential NBA team, you do have that kind of thing going on where people from outside are coming to see their team play the local team. And I think another team that has more of a community connection now is the aces of the WNBA. They have become more popular, and they were really the first national championship team here professionally. But I also think what this speaks to is what you might call the Las Vegasification of the country because of the spread of gambling and sports betting. We are no longer uh, persona non grata. Uh, 20 years ago, Las Vegas wanted to advertise on the Super Bowl, and the NFL said no. 20 years later, where's the Super Bowl? (laughs) So some of this has to do with Las Vegas and the surrounding area growing. Some of it has to do with how the image of Las Vegas and the reality have changed nationally. Let me share a listener comment from Cliff in Carson City in northern Nevada. He said, I moved from L.A. to northern Nevada for gaming and economics. I live in a large two-bedroom apartment here for $1,200 a month. I could never find a comparable apartment in L.A. And Cliff raises an important point. There are people who move to Nevada because of gaming. It is an attraction. And and for some people, it's not just the economics of, of what it costs to live, but also the uh, opportunity to visit casinos to take part in 
entertainment offerings of Las Vegas. We'll have more to come in just a couple of minutes on this special joint broadcast of Air Talk on LAS 89.3 in Southern California and State of Nevada on KNPR in Las Vegas. We're talking with listeners who've moved between Vegas and Los Angeles in either direction. What drove you to make the move? What you appreciate or don't appreciate about your new and old homes? And we want to hear from you. Your call at 866-893-5722-866-893-5722. If you'd prefer to put it in writing, email us at atcomments at laist.com. Laist is L-A-I-S-T. That's atcomments at laist.com. Please include your location and your first name. Joe Shaneman and I will be back in just a couple of minutes to continue and hear from listeners. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. And we and we are back. I'm Joe Shaneman. This is a special joint broadcast of State of Nevada on KNPR in Las Vegas and Air Talk on LAist 89.3 in Los Angeles. We're talking with listeners who've moved from Vegas to LA and some from LA to Vegas about what drove them to make that move. What they like, what they don't like about their new home. We welcome your calls. The number is 866-893-5722. That's 866 866- Eight nine three five seven two two. If you used to live in L.A. or in the San Francisco or the Bay Area, and you've moved to Northern California, Northern Nevada, or Southern Nevada, what drove you to do that? Share your experience. Give us a call. You can also email your comments to atcomments at laist.com. Include your first name, the city or the neighborhood in California or Nevada where you're writing from. And it just helps to give us a sense of place about where your comment is coming from. And right now, I want to go to a caller, Barbara in Henderson, who moved here from Los Angeles. Barbara, welcome. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead, Barbara. And what a, what a fun idea for you guys to get together. I am a... Um, a member of both stations. Very good. Wow, that's terrific. Yes, and still still listen to both stations regularly. Larry, I can't miss you, so i got to keep KPCC. Thank you, Barbara. um, 
Yeah, we moved here because I couldn't retire if we stayed. And I had lived there for 45 years. I love living in different parts of L.A. I miss the ocean terribly. But I have to say, our life here is just lovely. It's peaceful. It's calm. It's easy to get everywhere. There isn't a lot of traffic. We're in Green Valley and Henderson. We've made lots of friends. But I have noticed on apps like Nextdoor and, and sometimes in conversation, even with our neighbors who don't know we're from California, <laughs> Any problem that happens in Las Vegas, it's those Southern Californians who have come here ruining our town. And it's like, I didn't come here to ruin your town. They think we want to change the political climate. They think we're moving here to make uh, Southern Nevada or Nevada more blue. That's one big thing I hear all the time. And just we're using up all the resources. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. But that's the only... The only negativity that I hear is that kind of thing. But other than that, our life here is just lovely. And we still get back to Southern California a couple of times a year to visit friends and do things. So Barbara, there you go. But life here is great. Thank you so much for calling. Joe and I are, are smiling. We love that you listen to, to both KNPR and to LAist 89.3 and are members of both. And that your move after 45 years in Southern California has been such a positive one. Let's talk with Frank, who's in Las Vegas. Frank, I understand you're from San Diego? Uh, most recently, I'm originally from the Bay Area, 25 years. Um, but I left the Bay Area back in 2010 after the 08 meltdown. Um, had enough with California. <laughs> had great careers, great life, all that. I went to Hawaii. Uh, that turned into a 10-year stint. I came back to San Diego. I uh, was shocked that the cost of living in San Diego was uh, three times higher than the cost of living in Hawaii. That's that's astounding to hear, given Hawaii's cost of living. So you feel like you're really a, a Nevada now? Have you really settled in? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I I spent uh, I struggled for a year in San Diego, and I couldn't uh, I couldn't take the cost of living of everything, from <laughs> one bedroom apartment to twenty five hundred dollars to enormous traffic. Um, uh, did great there as far as as work. But then I heard the buzz about uh, Las Vegas, and I came out to explore the other side of Las Vegas. Uh, I heard about Henderson and, and Summerlin, and I and then I did a little three-day um, exploratory trip, and I found a couple of jobs and found a place to live in three days, That's which great. would never happen in, in San Diego. So uh, I live out uh, in Henderson as well, the other lady. She's uh, in Green Valley area and uh what brought me out here was a the cost of living and two was opportunity given that the economy and is exploding here all right frank i thank you so much we appreciate you you being with us yeah and if there's other callers out there that want to share your experience about why you moved to las vegas from la or to reno from the bay area the number to call we are doing this joint broadcast with air talk from laist 89.3. It's 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or email atcomments at laist.com. And I'm here with Larry Mantle. I'm Joe Shaneman. And I want to go to caller Linnea of Las Vegas, who moved here from San Diego just a couple of years ago. Linnea, welcome to the program. Hi, 
we we actually just lost Linnea, unfortunately, oh. Joe. But uh, let's read her comment, and then we can we can sure. move to Joshua, the next caller. But Linnea, um, who called from Vegas, said, "I moved from San Diego to Spring Valley in 2021. I couldn't be happier. I go 10 miles to, uh, to the Strip, 10 miles in the other direction. I have Red Rock Canyon recreation area. I don't miss the beach or the freeways. I love it out here. There's more open space. That's Linnea in Las Vegas. Thanks very much." That's awesome. We do have another caller, Joshua from Henderson. Welcome to the program. Hey, how are you doing? And thank you for taking my phone call. Yeah. Uh, myself, I used to live in L.A., Inglewood, Pasadena, Pomona. The one huge thing that I've noticed here uh, is a huge increase in the homeless population. Uh, a lot of folks are cashing out in California, uh, to my understanding, uh, statistically speaking. And, and they are coming here and they're paying cash for homes. Well, unfortunately, it's pricing a lot of us out. And when I say us, I mean the people who uh, were here in Henderson. Well, I'm, I'm from Henderson. And even now, um, when I went to purchase a home, I, I couldn't find anything that was decent. Uh, everything had increased dramatically. Uh, and so it's priced me out of the, uh, out of the um, housing market, but also, too, the people who were already on edge as far as rent uh, and, and things like that, <clears throat> those people are now in the streets, uh, and I see them every day. I'm a registered nurse, and this is something that uh, really uh, captures my attention. Uh, there's also been other things as far as tagging that I, I definitely recognize that is from California. But anyway, uh, th there are a lot of people who move from California out of necessity, and God bless them, uh, but that's the one thing that I've noticed the most uh, is the increase in the homeless population here and then the affordability of homes because um, we're just outright being yeah. um, um, priced out. Joshua, I'm, I'm, um, I think it's striking. You're a registered nurse, which is a high-paying profession, and still finding yourself priced out of homes. That's got to be discouraging. It's extremely discouraging. Um, and, I mean, some of the homes... The prices, and then, of course, with inflation, uh, I'm not going to go there. That's a whole other uh, topic. But, uh, yes, it's, it's a huge problem. And uh, so I moved yeah. out and actually had to move right back to the very same area that I moved from because I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford anything better than that. Uh, and to my, according to my realtor, he said, well, you know, uh, the folks are coming from across the border. And they're paying cash. They're paying cash. You, know, and you, you can't cash is king. No, I appreciate yeah. it, Joshua, very much. Joe, it might be, be good to turn to Professor DeMore about homelessness because obviously that is a huge quality of life issue here in Southern California. Professor DeMore, I don't know whether um, you have any statistics on any trends of homelessness in the Vegas area. Um, they do an annual count of that, and I haven't seen that lately. Michael may be familiar with that. Um, no, but it certainly has increased and it's um, been an issue. Tried to address a little bit in that last in the last legislative session um, for sort of the sort of first time trying to do it systematically here. Um, it's one of the issues that where we struggle as a region because we don't really have a regional governance structure to address this, right? So you essentially get um, each of the municipalities with their own sort of policies. Um, that oftentimes just end up pushing it to the borders of the municipalities, as it turns out there. So this is a, something where, where we are going to struggle because we don't have that collective uh, governance and resources to address this. Yeah, the upcoming count is in about a month. About a year ago when they did the last count, it was much higher than in previous years. And it is a big issue here. And, and as the caller mentioned earlier, 
We are seeing this this influx of people from California who want to come here because the cost of homes are much lower, but they are buying homes with cash and sometimes way above the asking price, and that is leading to this huge increase in the value of homes here. And Professor Demore, how much of a problem is that in the Las Vegas, but but even more so in the Reno area where the cost of a home is more expensive than in Las Vegas? Yeah, and it's it's, you know, priced out so many of the, of, the, of the local residents here. And this is one of the great tensions we have, right? That much of Las Vegas and Nevada in general was built on come do sort of blue collar work and live a white, white collar lifestyle. Um, three, you know, the, the, the house in the suburbs, three bedroom house in the suburbs with a pool, that's no longer attainable here. Um, and I think we, what we ha- don't have is a real hollowing out of the middle class because we haven't created an industrial base or some of those jobs there. We're still well behind on the healthcare jobs that would sort of help to, to, to fill out that middle there. So that's something that we're struggling with as a state. Um, and a lot of it is just simply also the other part of this. So we're simply running out of vacant land to build on. <laughs> so the, the, the old solution of just rolling out another, another suburb um, farther out from the urban core, that's really no longer an, op- uh, an option here. And Larry, we have a, a lot of uh, emails here from different comments. I'm going to start with one, and uh, let's just kind of go back and forth here. Uh, we have um, we have an email here from Jorgen in Las Vegas. This is my biggest gripe about people from other states, particularly Californians, is their failure to register their vehicles in our state. I've seen California plates in my neighborhood for years without them transferring their tags <laughs> to our state. At traffic signals, I see them. While Californians reap the economic benefits of moving here, we lose out on registration fees and taxes that fund our local government, schools, and our state's general fund. I'm old enough, uh, Joe, that I remember here in Southern California the same complaints that were <laughs> made when so many people were moving here in the 60s and 70s and people didn't re-register their vehicles. The state had to actually launch a down to try and collect that vehicle registration revenue. Uh, Mike in Mountain's Edge emailed us, having grown up in Vegas, I relocated to Long Beach in early 2008. It was a transformative period where I carved out a career in the nonprofit sector and completed grad school at Cal State Long Beach. Unfortunately, the post-graduation job market was tough, drawing me back to Vegas in 2015. That's Mike in Mountain's Edge. And Gordon from New York says, I've lived in Southern California and Las Vegas. I love them both. The diversity of Los Angeles makes me very happy. The weather, the beauty, cultural opportunities are exceptional given the nature that abounds. It's truly amazing. Las Vegas is also diverse. Clark County has such great potential, and I was surprised to find that I also fell in love with the natural beauty of this region. Of course, as a destination, Las Vegas has so much to offer. Conrad in Henderson uh, joining us. Thanks so much. Uh, I understand you're a realtor in Vegas. Uh, Conrad, please share with us what you see with your clients. Yes, good morning. Um, so I moved here in uh, 2000, and I've been a licensed realtor now for 12 years. And I would say at least 70% plus of my buyers are from California. And for two main reasons. First, they're sick of the traffic. <laughs> Second, property taxes. I mean, there's so much value to be had out here still. And uh, I do with a lot of luxury buyers. And, um, you know, in L.A., it's $1,000 a square foot. And you can get into a luxury home here for as low as $500, $600 a square foot. I mean, it's just so much value. And, of course, we're the entertainment capital of the world. I absolutely love this city. The opportunities here are terrific. And uh, I only see it going up from here. 
stuff. Uh, Conrad, do, do a lot of people who want to buy homes here, do they ever express worry about the water situation? Sometimes. Um, and, but, uh, you know, I, I don't see that uh, being a, a dramatic uh, problem and I think we are that we have the strongest restrictions in the country and the best uh, conservation programs in the nation and um, you know I think uh, especially uh, if, if the weather continues as it, as it is last year we had a great snowfall this year we're on track to uh, be you know close to it if you know maybe a little less but I think we're going to be just fine and hope, um, yeah. yeah I'm not worried about it all. I hope that's the case. Uh, we have another caller here from Brooke in Las Vegas who moved to Las Vegas from the Bay Area. Brooke, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. I love listening to your show, and I'm still members of KUER and KZU. Um, I moved here in January of 2020 for work. Um, so I came here for sales, and I came here knowing that I would be traveling a lot. People would be coming to see me because, of course, it is a destination city. And then the pandemic happened, and so my son had gone off to college. I was an empty nester, so I was here, like, alone for the first time. And, and it was a very difficult time moving here right at the start of the pandemic and with how shut down our town was. Uh, but I've really grown to love it. I was able to... Um, get into a home. I lived here for about a year renting, started looking and bought and actually built a home. And, you know, I tell my friends that live back in California and I just say, you know, it's a, it's a different quality of life here. Um, you know, as, as previous callers have mentioned, just the, the cost of living, uh, taxes, gas in our car. Um, the one thing I am glad of is that where I raised my son and, and the schools, I, I don't know if I would have wanted to uh, transplant a teenager here for high schools, um, but other than that, I, I think it's been a pretty great transition for me personally. Brooke, and Brooke, Brooke, I'm sorry, Larry, you're, you're speaking to the education system here, which in Nevada has ranked you know, very close to the bottom for decades, and now we're in the mid-40s in, in the 50 states. Um, do you, since your son's grown up out of the public education system, is it something that you hope will improve here, or is that out of your mind now? No, I absolutely do, because I have friends that are educators. I have clients with children in our system. I mean, during the pandemic, schools were shut down. Many people pulled their children out of public school and put them in the private schools or the charter schools because those were open and available. So it, it, it definitely is. And I, I mean, I plan on living here and being a resident and I want, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. So we need to have a better education system to grow our entire economic base outside of the hospitality and tourism. Brooke, thank you so much. Brooke in Vegas joining us. In case you just tuned in and you wonder what you're listening to, it's a simulcast between two NPR member stations, KNPR in Las Vegas and LAist 89.3 in Southern California. Joe Shaneman, the host of State of Nevada on KNPR. I'm Larry Mantle, the host of Air Talk, which is in this time slot on LAist 89.3. And we're hearing from listeners of both of these regions. 
Southern Nevada and Southern California. Their experiences about moving between the two locations. We continue to see a huge draw uh, of Southern Nevada to Southern Californians because of uh, the lower cost of living, more affordable housing, and availability of jobs. So we would like to hear from you what your personal experience is. We've had some wonderful callers so far who've shared with us what it's like moving between the locations. We're at 866-893-5722. That's our unified phone number for this simulcast, 866-893-5722. You can also email us with our email address for this special broadcast, which is atcomments at laist.com. That's atcomments at L-A-I-S-T dot com. Please share if you email us your first name and the location where you're emailing. We'd love to hear from you. And Joe, we've got uh, yet more email uh, messages. We have a really interesting email from Yvonne in Los Angeles who says that her parents moved from a senior community in Riverside to Los Angeles during the, quote, Las Vegas is for families era. (laughs) Remember that. I do too. Their dollars went further. They were able to drive at least a decade longer, but as their health and monetary resources declined and as their social networks began to fade, they were hard-pressed to locate, to relocate to a good senior medical and social services area in Las Vegas. So after her father passed away, they moved their mother to the Midwest five years ago where the infrastructure for the aging and end-of-life medicine were exceptional, and that is a major issue in Nevada. They're calling it the silver tsunami here. There is a massive increase in the number of people who are who are um, at retirement age. And David Damore, I wonder how you see the state being able to handle that massive, it's not really an influx, it's people, well, it's both. It's an influx of people who are moving to retire here, but also people who are just becoming older, the baby boomer generation. Is this state prepared for that? Uh, short answer, no. Um, this is one of the areas I think where economic development in uh, our, our needs are going to meet, and that is building out our healthcare economy um, to address some of these issues here. We did take in the last legislative session um, a pretty important step, right? That is that they uh, raised the uh, pay rates for home health care workers. Um, I think about $5 is what it came out to be, so pretty significant there. Um, that's a pretty unstable um uh, employment sector. So hopefully you can bring some, some stability to it and make it a more attractive um, uh, uh, jobs moving forward because we're going to need a lot of um, home health care workers, particularly with the movement um, nationally for sort of aging in the home as opposed to in retirement um, homes. Um, so that that is a real challenge, but I think it's also an opportunity for us on the economic development front. I, I I recall when we did a joint program, Joe, uh, several years ago, we had a couple of calls from people who were critical of health care in the Vegas area. And I don't know, is that something, Joe, you hear from your listeners or is that something in recent years that the, the uh, amount of health care provided and the quality of it has improved? Well, uh, David can answer this better than I, but uh, we also talk with medical professionals on this program, people from the new UNLV Medical School. It's still an issue here. It's a major issue here. It's the fact that we have built a medical school in Las Vegas 
helps, but it doesn't really help in retaining doctors here. That really goes to residency programs, which the state has given more money to, but it was far less than what those at the two medical schools in Reno and Las Vegas wished for. It's that kind of money, that kind of support for residency programs that keeps doctors here after they complete that program. It's still a major, major issue, major, major issue here. Some people still believe that the the best hospital, uh, the best medical care you can get is by going to Arita International Airport and taking a flight to UCLA. We wow. hear that all the time here still. Wow. Yeah, we do. We, we export a lot of our health care, to, to, to Joe's point there, to, to, to the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix and also to Southern California as well. So we have grown our healthcare sector. The problem is, is it's basically kept up with the pace of growth. So we're still kind of running in place and trying to make these sort of big jumps. It's really, really hard starting from how far of a deficit we were in terms of our infrastructure just 10 years ago. Uh, Carrie in Ventura emailed us, it'd be remiss to not mention the status of the high-speed rail development. This will be a game changer. I work as crew in the entertainment industry. When this is completed, there will be commuters in our industry taking that train. Um, Joe, to what extent is is there um, uh, faith that the high-speed rail will be built between uh, South Strip area and uh, Rancho Cucamonga in Southern California? California. We we just did a program about this just a couple of weeks ago, and now it seems that the the funding, uh, more than a billion dollars in funding, is coming through. That is, you know, from all estimates, you know, and I always say this with a bit of skepticism because I've been hearing about this for decades here, but with a bit of skepticism, they say it is actually going to happen. That it could be constructed within the next five years. And that was a big question that I had before this program as well. And, and David, I wonder if you think, like, uh, like the person who we mailed in, if we will become more of a suburb or a bedroom community to L.A. or, or how that high-speed train could change the mix of people who live in Las Vegas or work in California or vice versa. I mean, I think there's a lot of unknowns with that. Um, Bright lines estimating that it'll cut the I-15 traffic by 20%, but that again assumes that that, that the train doesn't induce more people to come um, for those very reasons we've talked about. And then you think about if the supplemental airport gets built down at the um, at the state line there, mm-hmm. what that also means for those. So there's lots of sort of unknowns in that. I think in the short term, it provides some, assuming it gets built, and again, getting that federal money, I think is a huge, um, gives us a, a huge leg up on that has the potential to alleviate some of that tension and make that drive a little bit um, easier, at least in the short term. But I think those are all great questions and a lot of it's sort of sort of the unknown. Think about if, you know, we move forward on a, on a movie studio here. What does that mean in terms of the, increasing the traffic between Southern California and Southern Nevada as well? And we are nearing the end of the program. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I am here with Larry Mantle. He is the host of AirTalk at LAist.com 89.3. I'm Joe Shaneman at KNPR, State of Nevada in Las Vegas. This has been a simulcast, and we hope to do it, uh, Larry, 
a lot more in the future. Yeah. This has been fun. It is. I, I'm so appreciative, Joe, of you and your team at KMPR for being up to do this. Our thanks to the technical uh, folks at both LAS 89.3 and KNPR. Thank you for joining us for this special simulcast of Air Talk on LAS 89.3 in Southern California and State of Nevada, KNPR in Las Vegas. Uh, Joe and I hopefully be doing this again sometime soon. Great to hear from listeners in both markets. Have a wonderful rest of your day. AirTalk continues for LA listeners. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. That was so much fun to do the joint broadcast last hour with our friends at KNPR in Las Vegas. Great to hear from the listeners there. And we'll do that more often. And I'm hopeful that we'll do more joint broadcasts with our fellow NPR member stations throughout the West because we are so interconnected on so many different issues, particularly those involving the climate and natural resources. It just uh, makes perfect sense for us to talk about these areas in which we have commonalities. We turn our attention now, though, to the Los Angeles Times and the challenges that it faces amidst an industry that's reeling from a decline in advertising dollars and digital subscriptions just have not kept pace uh, to be able to backfill for the loss in advertising that American newspapers are experiencing. There are some outliers. Uh, The New York Times, which continues to thrive and has a very successful niche for itself, but for many other major American papers, these are tough times, and that was brought into a greater focus yesterday with the announcement that Los Angeles Times executive editor Kevin Merida is stepping down after heading the newsroom for the past two and a half years. His last day at the Times will be this coming Friday. He had experience working with other news organizations, building them up digitally. That was the hope that he what would he would bring to the Los Angeles Times. But everybody is finding it a challenge. With us is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. Uh, ironically, David, yesterday on AirTalk, we began the program where I talked about finally canceling my, my print subscription to the L.A. Times, home delivered, uh, after they raised the price to nearly $1,000 a year. I, I find gave up. Um, but um, and then we get the news that Kevin is leaving. What do you know about the reasons behind his departure? 
So uh, we uh, have basically to go on uh, most tangibly the two, uh, not dueling, but complementary statements from Kevin Merida and, of course, the controlling owner of the Los Angeles Times, the inventor and investor uh, billionaire there, Patrick Sunshong, whose family uh, holds the paper. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's a great secret, to be honest, that that at least there's nothing to indicate there's anything more than what it appears to be. You know, Sunshong, uh, Meredith said it was his decision after consulting with with Patrick Sunshong and soul searching. But nonetheless, what Patrick uh, Sunshong says is two things. He says, our vision is to establish the Los Angeles Times as the dominant source of information. I'm reading here, providing distinctive in-depth reporting on Los Angeles, California, and the West Coast. But he also says, it is now imperative that we all work together to build a sustainable business that allows for growth and innovation. And I think that Sunshong had been experiencing losses of tens of millions of dollars a year uh, at the LA Times and not seeing the kind of turnaround that had been uh, engineered, you know, 25, 2600 miles away in New York uh, under the Sulzberger family. Uh, and that there had been hopes had been occurring at the Washington Post as well, but we've seen turnover in the top ranks of that newspapers where its publisher has been replaced in recent months by its owner, Jeff Bezos. So while there are other disagreements we can talk about between Kevin Merida and the Sunshong family, I think that, that the fundamental one is the one that is most uh, apparent to the public eye. And while Sunshong is a billionaire and can hold these losses for a while, the, the operating thinking of a number of uh, major, you know, civic-minded figures like the Sunshongs who have stepped forward in other markets uh, in, for example, Minneapolis and Boston, is that these enterprises ultimately have to be sustainable. Uh, it appears as though he feels that uh, Merida's uh, leadership and vision did not uh, afford them a quick enough uh, transition to that sustainability. We're talking with NPR media correspondent, frequent air talk guest David Falkenflick, also with us from USC's Annenberg's Media Center, professor of professional practice and director of the Media Center, formerly editor with the Los Angeles Times, Christina Bellantoni. Christina, thank you for being with us. Your thoughts about Kevin Merritt's announcement yesterday he's leaving. Yeah, you know, this is not the way you want to start a new year. Um, usually it's about looking forward and um, ambition and excitement. And the staff was really rattled to get this news. Um, after, it's really important to point out, last summer there were huge layoffs in the newsroom uh, when Soon Xiong first bought the paper. That was right when I was leaving. Uh, the deal closed maybe a week after I left to transition to academia in 2018. And, you know, he expanded the paper greatly. He had a, a huge hiring spree. He brought back a lot of people who had been um, had taken buyouts or had made other decisions, you know, to be cut over the years. And and then over the years since, they've had some rocky times, obviously maneuvering during the pandemic and um, some of the market forces that, of course, David's outlined so ably there. But what has happened is that the staff is is looking for a vision, and. It is challenging when you're trying to be all things at once. And I love the LA Times. I am a lifelong subscriber. I will continue yeah. to do that. And it is really important to me to support you know this paper in this very important city in America. At the same time, 
I personally believe that they need to focus more on California. They can grow that subscriber base. They can make the money here. By trying to be a national paper too, it gets stretched very thin. Um, it's extremely expensive and you're not able to really have that focus. And this has been a debate at that paper for decades. Um, many people have different feelings about it. I, I feel strongly about California first and as do a lot of people there. And, and that issue might come into conflict. There also has been some interesting reporting out there. Um, the New York Times noted that there could be some tie-in with a conflict that came over reporting on the conflict in Israel. Um, to me, that's that's really an interesting dynamic to explore. Um, Soon Xiong told the paper's own Meg James, who wrote the story about Merida leaving, that that had nothing to do with his departure. But I thought that that was a really interesting detail uncovered by the New York Times. And can you be a little more specific, Christina, about what, yeah. what's alleged to be the conflict over the Gaza reporting? So there was an open letter that went out signed by many journalists across the country uh, sort of arguing that newspapers should use different terminology when it, with regards to the conflict. I believe among the details in it were that there should be um, uh, calling some of the actions Israel has done at war crimes. There's like some specifics and a number of L.A. Times journalists signed that and Merida made the decision to put a three-month ban on coverage of the conflict for the individuals that signed it. Okay. Um, it was a decision that got a lot of attention, and the New York Times said that there was conflict there. Again, that's denied in the New York Times, in the LA Times' own story, saying that it had nothing to do with that. Um, but it is something that um, has caused a lot of tension within newsrooms. And you know the other thing that it's really important is is people worry that this departure is a signal that maybe Sun Xiang would want to sell. But he also told Meg James um, of the LA Times, you know, we're a thousand percent committed to the paper. You know, that's in an interview with her, and uh, I think that was a little bit of relief to some staffers who were just you know kind of wondering what's the next major thing to happen, and and everybody's bracing for what will probably be further cuts. We're talking with Christina Bellantoni, professor at USC and director of SC. Annenberg Media Center. She was an editor with the Los Angeles Times for a number of years. By the way, we invited uh, executive editor of the Times, Kevin Meredith, to join us, and uh, we have not heard back on our request from that, an opportunity to hear from him in his own words about um, further details involved in his decision to depart from his leadership of the newsroom. If you have questions for our guests, Professor Bellantoni or David Falkenflick, NPR media correspondent, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. David, uh, we'll often hear uh, over the years of news executives who've departed because they didn't want to be the ones to carry out wholesale cuts in the newsroom. And so I have to say, you know, my first thought based on previous experience was that perhaps Merida was leaving because big cuts were coming and, and he didn't want to implement those. But it sounds like we have we have no information indicating that is the case. Yeah, I asked uh, the Los Angeles Times about that yesterday and uh you know, I basically uh, got back the fact that current newsroom staffing is approximately 500 people, and they don't tend to make forward-looking statements about staffing levels. Um, you know, let's be clear, Merida already oversaw 
you know, a 13% layoff, uh, you know, late last spring, uh, which was deeply demoralizing to folks at the LA Times, which as Christina said, had, uh, you know, built back a lot of the muscle that had been carved away by previous ownership under various incarnations of the Tribune uh, and Tribune Media Company um, that had been somewhat debilitating to them. Uh, you know, we don't know is the answer. I don't think they know. I think one of the really uh, kind of crazy things about the moment we're in is that this is a time where the economy, and there are a lot of people hurting, and, you know, you've got very high mortgage rates for people who are hoping to buy houses, but the economy has actually been gunning along at a pretty terrific rate. You know, unemployment has been incredibly low. Inflation has been, you know, gotten under not only control, but is now pretty low and has been for some months. Wage increases have outstripped inflation. So purchasing power has started to reclaim. And, and you know, there have been a number of major union contracts settled in places like, you know, car, uh, car manufacturers and newsrooms and other places. Uh, and yet there's been a recession, not in the country at large, but in the media industry. And you've seen wave after wave of layoffs at places, including the LA Times, 10% from NPR, uh, I think uh, 10%, a little more if you include an earlier wave early last year at the Washington Post, at Vox, you know, BuzzFeed essentially closed down its news division. Uh, You've seen Vice declare bankruptcy. It's a tough time in the media industry. And, you know, there's no particular guarantee that given that that's happening during fairly strong time of, of, you know, public expenditures and fairly strong economy, that if things start to sour in the broader economy, there won't be a lot of things further hit. And there's no guarantee there won't be another wave of cuts from essentially advertisers and people like you, uh, as you mentioned, Larry, feeling they're priced out of uh, print subscriptions. Christina may have greater insight about this. You know, it's been a long time since I worked for a newspaper, but uh, sort of counterintuitively, even as we are living in a digital age and every news organization, almost, uh, almost every news organization talks about themselves as being digital first, you know, those print subscriptions are major revenue drivers, even as they're relatively costly to get to the doorstep. Yeah. Uh, and the ability to build on it, you know, the, the LA Times doesn't have even um, 10% of the paying subscribers that the New York Times does. It is a tough, tough uh, road ahead for major news organizations like the LA Times, which has significant ambitions and terrific accomplishments and, and talent there. Uh, but are trying to figure out how to make it. I think I think if you look at the Washington Post and the LA Times, they look very similar right now, trying to figure out how to get there. Well, it seems to me that the Post really landed during the Trump years on the successful formula of being, in a sense, the voice of the opposition. They're really, if you looked on their app at, at the number of critical Trump stories, just one after the other, different aspects of the Trump administration, they were really able to carve their, their niche out of that for people who really wanted to immerse themselves. But after Donald Trump left office and with Trump fatigue, Christina Bellantoni, I think that's been very hard for the Post to sort of recapture that sort of of market that they that they had um, largely to themselves, or at least, it, you know, with the degree of focus they did versus their com- uh, competition. Sure. And it was also for in their case, they expanded so significantly that um, cuts were sort of for me, I just could see that coming. (laughs) That would have to happen, Mm -hmm. you know, as the industry kind of readjusted. 
In the LA Times case, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm just, you know, on the California first drum that I want to beat. But if you think about it, the reason that people are subscribing to the New York Times in California is because they're making a choice in many cases, like they don't want to do both. And if the LA Times got even a share or a fraction of what the New York Times subscriber base is in California, it would substantially help the finances. And so what can they do that is unique? And one of the things that drives the paper, entertainment coverage, right? We're right here. Um, amazing local sports coverage. We have all of the professional sports franchises, in many cases, two of them, uh, in addition to, you know, really important places and things. Politics are so important here. One in 10 Americans as a Californian. And um, the unique thing that you can offer where actually here in the second largest city in America, it's kind of a news desert when it comes to understanding local government and um, really complex local California issues and all the very many micro communities that exist. And that's something if you really invested in that, people would have to subscribe to you because they they would be getting news that they can really use in their communities, whereas you can find a story about Donald Trump anywhere. We're talking with Christina Bellantoni, professor of professional practice at USC and director of the SC Annenberg Media Center, formerly editor with the LA Times, David Folkenflik, NPR media correspondent. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. We'll continue our conversation on the Los Angeles Times. If you have questions about the paper, we're at 866-893-5722 or larger questions about the survival of journalism. Which is, which is an open question uh, financially, given the loss of advertising revenue and people's reluctance to pay subscriptions for what they receive. We're at 866-893-5722. Manny in West Hollywood emailed, if the LA Times moves away from far-left sensibilities, shifts to a more centric, less agenda-driven message, it will do better. And Jack in Los Angeles says, one issue for the decline in circulation is the leftward swing of the paper. We'll talk about the politics of the LA Times coverage when we come back in one minute. It's Air Talk on L.A. Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Christina Bellantoni of USC's Annenberg Media Center, which she directs. She's professor at SC in journalism and David Falkenflick, NPR media correspondent with us. Manny in West Hollywood, Jack in Los Angeles, uh, talking about the Times and its move to the left. Yet the New York Times has has been able, with a left-of-center focus on the news, um, to be able to really cultivate a very large audience. They've created a national identity for that newspaper. They may not get a lot of conservative readers, but there are enough left-of-center that the Times has really become an important news source for them. So, Christina, you know, given that, that the Times has established itself as a national paper and has access to all those subscribers across the country. How would the Times with a California-centric approach, you know, be able to get that kind of regional subscribership? I mean, I think in part it's it's the amazing journalism that they already do, right? They do incredible investigations. I mean, they had a series over the last year on the California State University system, um, diving deep into um, some serious misconduct there and um, some big problems within the board of trustees. And, you know, that's the sort of thing I can't get that news anywhere else. That's an investment in California that matters. I mean, it's the largest 
state university system in the country. And it is absolutely influential just in pure numbers here. And, you know, within the paper, you even have that acknowledgement. There's always this talk, you know, it's the gateway um, to the Asia Pacific. It's so important when it comes to, um, you know, North and South America relations. It's where, you know, political money comes through. You have all of these power leaders. I mean, it's, it's kind of amusing that you used to have the two top leaders in Congress. Yeah. We're from California now, yeah. neither. Um, but, you know, it's it's extremely important. And so in that way, it, it matters nationally, right? Fifth largest economy. Um, and we're all of these um, major influential things about California that if you cover it well, that will get that national attention. It doesn't mean you ignore national news, but you you think about that approach. You know, that's that's one tactic. And again, you know, I'm not there anymore. We did a little bit of that when I was there. And uh, they still do a little bit of that. But even if you look at today's front page, it was a national front page where the majority of what's on it, I can get elsewhere as a consumer of news. And um, yet there's a lot happening locally that is excellent and amazing on the California front page, right? That inside, you know, metro section, um, which they call the California section. And that, to me, like, I would want that on the front page. I would want that on the home page. I want um, that real focus there in a way that um, is competitive because many other news organizations don't have the resources of the L.A. Times to devote to that to that local coverage. Tim, uh, Tim and Sherman Oaks emailed us, I wonder how many local sports fans quit the paper after the Times eviscerated the sports page. Tim, I think their hope was by doing longer, more in-depth pieces – uh, fewer overall pieces in the sports section, it would it would make it more of an attraction that it would be the kind of depth you couldn't get elsewhere, that you wouldn't be getting on an app on your phone, and that if they de-emphasized scores and game reporting and emphasized um, stories about the people of sports and, and behind-the-scenes things, that that would drive subscribership. We'll have to see if, if that effort uh, works. Uh, David, your thoughts about the political content of the Times, because I am struck by the fact that, I mean, I can only think of one conservative um, op-ed writer, Jonah Goldberg, in, in the Times. Uh, all the rest are left of center. The coverage, uh, I think you could say, is is um, straightforward or at times veers into left of center with sort of the language and, and how the stories are framed. Is this something that um, you think has damaged the the L.A. Times at all? You know, I'm just thinking how best to process uh, that question. Uh, I think that the L.A. Times, like many newsrooms, uh, has been, you know, accused of being left of center over the year. There's certainly others who have accused it of being reactionary or racist or what have you. But let's focus on the, the one that you're uh, presenting at the moment. And I think there's a decent number of uh, readers, former readers, non-readers who who agree with that. I think that after the uh, 2020 sort of uh, social justice movement that played out in the streets, but also affected a lot of thinking inside newsrooms and particularly among uh, reporting staffs, there has been an assertion of an idea that, you know, hey, we're told that our life experiences should inform our understanding of our stories and our beats and our coverage. We're going to actually bring them to are reporting now. And I think there is more of a, I hate to say an ideology, but a sensibility that presents, you know, you talked about the LA, uh, the New York Times earlier being a left of center newspaper. You know, it would argue that it is a newspaper with a, uh, a sensibility that is grounded 
where where it's based in New York, but that it is trying to speak to and reach, you know, all kinds of readers. And to some degree, it's succeeded. I mean, it's got 10 million subscribers. Not all of them are to the core paper. Some of them are to, uh, you know, the athletic, the sports site it has, or the New York Times cooking or games uh, apps or, or, or content. But, you know, the vast majority is subscribing to the newspaper and getting all of that. And, you know, some of those folks are going to be conservatives or, or, or self described centrists as well. But I do think there is an outlook that frames certain kinds of stories and what stories are picked can be informed as that as well. But I wouldn't say that the LA Times is alone in that. And I would say that their reporters and their editors overwhelmingly are trying to make very good faith efforts to present you know, a complex understanding of the communities uh, and larger world in which we and you live. And that uh, they don't see their point of what they do is going out in the morning and finding out uh, ways to uh, prop up, you know, your previous beliefs. I talked, this may seem like an aside, but I once talked to Paul Bagala, who'd been an advisor to Bill Clinton, and then became a pundit on CNN for many years. And he said, uh, you know, and this is in some ways a painful analogy, but he says, you know, I look at my role on CNN, uh, much the way that, uh, you know, a, 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 an inebriated person looks at a lamppost, uh, more for uh, support than illumination. And that's not what the LA Times does. The LA Times tries to offer illumination and insight and uh, original reporting and accountability on the, the events playing out in, you know, in California, Southern California, Los Angeles, and, and the dynamics that shape them and the actors at play. And so for folks who are focused on ideology, they get to do that. They may feel the stories they care about aren't looked at or examined, but I, I wouldn't say that they see themselves as an ideological outlet. Yeah, you look I'm sure at places, they don't. Yeah. No, when I, I places like the, like the Washington Post, I just want to make this last point. You know, you were right. Like the post during the Trump years really did have, you know, seemingly two, six, nine stories on on that are almost bites at the same apple of the same controversies enveloping, you know, then President Trump. Right. But uh, it didn't always do so in an ideological way. It was just the sheer volume, the sheer. But it, in so doing, those were on the most read lists and the, the oh, algorithms yeah, they knew were their telling audience. them this is what yeah. their own audience was telling Absolutely. them they wanted to consume. So the, the fault lies not just in the stars, but in ourselves on this thing as well, to some degree. Let me share some listener comments. Stephen Culver City says, I've been reading the New York Times daily for international coverage. I wouldn't think to go to the L.A. Times for that. I think if the L.A. Times wants to grow, it needs to bring up a bench of writers who can cover world events in addition to local events. So it's kind of the opposite of what Christina Bellantoni was uh, offering, that it really really should be a California focus for the Times. Robert in Santa Monica says, having been a reporter for the former L.A. Herald Examiner, I was wondering about the fun factor missing from the L.A. Times. When we were a paper, we made sure to focus on subjects that drew readers in. Robert, I'm so glad you raised that point. The old Herald Examiner and, and even the L.A. Times earlier years, there was more fun to reading that paper. Um, and and I think this is not just the LA Times that struggles with this, but many newspapers kind of talking down to their readers and, and as opposed to really enjoying learning alongside of them. 
And I think that that voice is, is um, it, it's difficult for many readers um, to feel like the writer who's writing the story is sort of lecturing you about how you should feel about something or the points that they think are important as opposed to laying out a wider palette of, of issues that are surrounding a particular topic being discussed. Uh, Janet in Hancock Park says, I'm in total agreement with Christina. The L.A. Times should really be covering California, specifically Los Angeles more. It doesn't seem to cover cultural organizations in the city. There's little worthy music and arts coverage. I'm about ready to give up my subscription, Janet says. You know, there is a criticism, of course, in the Times. Justin Chang, the great critic who's a part of our, our um, Film Week core of, of critics, does film criticism that I think is the finest in the country. Um, Michael Woods, a critic on, on pop music uh, for the Times, does a wonderful job. But there definitely is not the range of criticism that used to be a part of the Times, daily criticism of concerts and things going on. I think the focus has been more on featuring the artists themselves, what stories they're telling, their journeys in becoming artists, than it is on the actual performances themselves. And, um, you know, for those of us of a certain generation that really enjoy reading reviews and like feeling like we were at an event from reading about it, there's much less of that. And who knows what's of appeal to younger audiences. I want to thank our guests so much for being with us and sharing their expertise. Christina Bellantoni, Professor of Professional Practice at USC, where she directs the Annenberg Media Center, formerly Los Angeles Times editor, and David Folkenflik, NPR media correspondent, joining us on AirTalk as well. When we come back, we're going to be talking about efforts to change the interplay between those who were guards at prisons and those who were incarcerated there. This is part of the plan to take San Quentin, the large historic prison up in Marin County, and to turn it into a rehabilitative center instead of, of a max security prison. We'll talk about what's involved in those relationships between correctional officers and inmates when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Earlier last year, Governor Newsom formed the San Quentin Transformation Advisory Council. 
It brought together the mayor of Sacramento, those who had been incarcerated, uh, film producers were included, a lot of different people tasked with reimagining San Quentin State Prison This part of a larger effort to shift San Quentin into a rehabilitative center. Earlier this week, the Advisory Council released a 156-page report called Reimagining San Quentin. It includes a recommendation to retrain correctional officers and to create a new job description for them, community correctional officer. The idea is to make them friendlier, more compassionate of what those incarcerated are going through, what their backgrounds are, relating to them more as people. The question is, is, is this practical? Does this really work with a prison population and with the professionals who are there 40 hours a week working with that population? Joining us, one of the members of the Advisory Council, the mayor of Sacramento and former California legislator Daryl Steinberg. Mayor Steinberg, great to have you with us again on Air Talk. Nice to be with you again, Larry. So uh, explain to us a bit how this fits in with the larger vision for San Quentin. Well, as you say, the Advisory Council produced a, a lengthy report that really focused on three key pieces. Number one, how do we change the lived experience at San Quentin for both the residents and the correctional officers, change both the physical space at San Quentin as well as the culture and the programming to move from a traditional prison to a center of rehabilitation. Secondly, we concluded at the very beginning that unless we focused on changing the role of correctional officers, unless they were a, a fundamental part of this transformation, that nothing we do to the physical space or even in increasing and enhancing programs would bring the kind of change that we want to see. And third, a fundamental tenet of the report is to focus on re-entry and to uh, make sure that from the very beginning that people who are incarcerated at San Quentin and, and at hopefully throughout the entire system over time have a comprehensive rehabilitation plan that leads to a, a more than an antidote, if you will, to the $200 and a bus ticket when they're released. Um, real re-entry that focuses on, on uh, acclimating the person back into the community. And so throughout all of this, um, the role of the correctional officer and all um, personnel at the prison is key. And here's the, the little known secret. The correctional officers are suffering themselves. Um, they're part of the rehabilitation because the job is not generally a happy one. They live on average 14 to 21 years less than the average lifespan. They have a high rate of PTSD, uh, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases. And so healing making sure that they're part of the rehabilitation and healing process um, is an essential part of changing the experience for the residents. And by the way, this is not some soft proposal, some soft on crime thing. This is essentially about public safety and uplifting human dignity because 90% of the people who leave, who, who are in prison leave. 
And in California, we've got nearly a, a, a 50% recidivism rate compared to Europe, many parts of Europe, which is uh, about half of that. And so this is about making sure that public safety is enhanced and that we give people a better chance in life uh, when they are released and while they are serving their time. Have have we seen have we studied differences in approaches within prisons like San Quentin cuz I know the effort to compare with another, you know, European country and how they do things, but there's so many different cultural differences and other factors that go into uh, American prisons versus European ones. And and I wonder about a study where you have correctional officers who take that sort of um, more uh, friendlier approach, for lack of a better term, where they, you know, ask um, those incarcerated about their lives and experience. They're, they're kind of combination social worker and correctional officer versus those who are just, you know, serving a strictly correctional officer function to see what the differences are in that, because that yes. might be helpful to see. Well, there's no question. The idea, they call it dynamic security, right? Prisons are, ba- are, are, are philosophically, it's about security. Dynamic security says that where there is a better relationship between the correctional officer and correctional personnel and the resident, the inmate, that... <clears throat> the resident inmate will have a much better chance at success. The prison itself will be safer and the officer will have a a much more positive work experience. So there are many examples. I mean, in North Dakota, they have pioneered what are called positive behavior reports. In California, the correctional officers write up the residents when they do something bad, but there's no positive affirmation when they do something good in the state of Washington, excuse me, they are developing a whole normalization program around their correctional officers where, where they're training and providing a new certificate program to empower the staff and equip them with the skills to make the kind of impact on the individuals and the communities that, that we all want to see. And that's the idea, but behind the community corrections officer to, um, not to, to not relent on the necessary security, but to make sure that while the rehabilitation center remains secure, that there are ways for the correctional officer and other correctional personnel to work in a positive way with the residents towards rehabilitation. Right. You know, one of the recommendations in the report, Larry, around the physical space is that we create something tantamount to a town square uh, at San Quentin. And the idea would be a place where the correctional officers and other personnel could interact with the residents in a much more healthy way, uh, either on uh, projects uh, at the rehabilitation center itself or to have some positive shared experience. It does not enhance public safety for there to be this, for for the current culture to remain the way that it is. We're talking with the mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg, the lead advisor to the San Quentin Transformation Advisory Council, which was uh, announced by Governor Newsom. Uh, It's been spending the past several months looking at ways of transitioning San Quentin to a a truly rehabilitative center. And one of the, the recommendations is to change the training of and relationship between correctional officers and 
those who are in the prison. Also with us is James King, co-director at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. He was incarcerated at San Quentin from 2013 until 2019 when he was paroled. James, thank you for joining us again. We we appreciate it very much. What do you think of this idea of retraining and, and trying to change the relationship of correctional officers to inmates? Hey, Larry, happy to be here. And and before I answer your question, just want to shout out Mayor Steinberg um, and the advisory committee for their um, for their report. I, I thought that um, they talked to a lot of stakeholders, obviously, and a lot of what they heard and received was processed and reflected in the report and just want to publicly just like commend them for their work as it pertains to the report. All right. As as the the mayor mentioned, the the statistic that really jumped out at me was this notion that correctional officers in California live on average between fourteen and twenty one years, lesser than than average citizens in the state or or people who don't work in a prison. And I thought to myself, how toxic must the work culture be to take a decade and a half off of your life? Um, and when you think about that level of toxicity, um, what would it take to root it out? Uh, I think is the the major question. And to be transparent, I'm I'm while I very much, very much support the goals of um, staff coming in, treating people with humanity and dignity, um, playing a different role as as opposed to being a disciplinarian in the space or considering themselves disciplinarians. Um, I think it's gonna require more than than merely shifting roles and trainings. Um, so I'm, um, and, and I'll just say just in full transparency, I spent a number of years in prison. I was at San Quentin for, for close to six years. And I don't know that I met very many correctional officers who went by the book, um, who simply just followed their trainings. Everyone um, who works in the space is greatly influenced by the culture and greatly influenced by their own upbringings. And so I'm very interested and eager to think about um, not just ways that we can help shift the roles not just ways that additional training can be provided to the correctional officers, but also ways that we can perhaps reduce the roles, bring in other stakeholders in to, to hold pieces. Um, I do feel skeptical of the notion that correctional officers in California can serve that quasi social worker correctional officer role. Just as, a, as an example, the correctional officers in Norway um, they go through years of training and, and it's an actual higher education program before they're um, before they go to work in the prisons. Our correctional officers work uh, or go through training for several weeks prior to, to starting to work in the in the prison. There's a great contrast in the education levels. And so I think that that um, it's a great start. It, it's needed and, and I definitely commend the, the goals, but I think that there's, in order to root out that level of toxicity, it's gonna take some really deep 
deep work. We're talking with James King, the co-director of programs at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. As he mentioned, he was incarcerated at San Quentin, um, was paroled in 2019. Also with us, the mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg, lead advisor to the San Quentin Transformational Advisory Council. I'd like to hear from you if if you yourself uh, have been a corrections officer, if you were incarcerated in the California State Prison System or in the prison system elsewhere, I'd be interested in hearing your experiences and how they relate to the approach you think correctional officers should take in their work. We're at 866-893-5722. Perhaps you have a family member who's uh, been a correctional officer or someone who's been incarcerated and has talked about relationships between those that are incarcerated at the facilities and those who are the officers there. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back with more with James King and Daryl Steinberg in just one minute. We have breaking news. Governor Newsom has announced a nearly $300 billion state spending plan with an estimated nearly $38 billion deficit. It's a significantly lower budget hole than the Legislative Analyst's Office had predicted back in December. It it estimated that the state would face a $68 billion deficit, the difference likely due to the stock market rebounding at year's end. The proposal the governor is laying out outlines how he wants to spend the taxpayer money and other state funds for the upcoming fiscal year uh, for the next six months. The final plan will be hashed out between the legislature, which is controlled by Democrats, and the governor's office. The governor's proposing to draw $13 billion from the state's reserves to cover some of the projected deficit. Again, that perhaps the headline here, the governor proposing $13 billion drawn from reserves to cover a portion of the projected deficit. Right now, we're talking about efforts to reform correctional officers' training and expectations within San Quentin Prison as part of the larger effort to turn San Quentin to a rehabilitative center where people are, upon their release, able to re-enter the job market, be able to to be um, socially interact with other people effectively, and be able to be productive members of society. I'm interested in hearing from you if you're someone who has been incarcerated in a state facility here in California or elsewhere, your thoughts about this idea of, of retraining and changing expectations for correctional officers. And if you're someone who has worked as a correctional officer, I'm interested in hearing your perspective on this. We're at 866-893-5722. James King of the Bay Center for Human Rights. Um, we hear a lot about how uh, prisons in Europe, you know, particularly Scandinavia, the different approach, how much better it works with people, how much better able they are to integrate into society upon their release. If I'm not mistaken, you've, you've taken at least one of those trips to look at prisons elsewhere. Do you think that you can draw um, comps from, from what we see elsewhere? Well, I mean, 
I think the advisory committee and the, the officers in Norway and the correctional officers who were on the tour with us will be the first to tell you that it's comparing apples to oranges. Um, just as one of the, I think one of the very first informational hearings that we sat in, that was the message like that um, it's unlikely that you can just um, take what's happening over there and, and replicate it here in our system for a myriad of reasons, including not just limited to the culture, but also like the incarceration rates in, in the state, the um, a lot of the political um, dynamics. That being said, there are definitely um, learnings that you can can take from from uh, European models and and from other models. Um, I'm a a huge fan of of the notion of treating people who are incarcerated with humanity and dignity to not using the disciplinary process in order to attempt to to control um, people's behavior. Something that they they have named in in Norway in particular is that the sentence is the the length of the sentence is the punishment. It's not the prison's job to to further or increase the punishment. And, and I think that that's exactly right and, and something we can and should um, integrate into our um, philosophy of incarceration. Um, and at the same time, I, I think that if we really want to, to um, set people up for success and successful reentry, we have to greatly reduce the length of sentences that people are serving um, because studies show that extreme sentencing um, exacerbates um, recidivism as well. Let, let me take a listener call from Susie in Pasadena. I understand you have a theater company that presents programs at a local state prison. Uh, share with us your observations, please. Hi, yes. Susie, uh, founder and director of Theater Workers Project. And we have been programming at California State Prison in Lancaster. This is our sixth year. And an interesting comment that one of the officers made when he was watching the men doing some very powerful creative theater work, I invited him to come to the performance. I said, why don't you come and watch them? They're such fantastic artists. And he said, if I, he says, I can't see them that way. Because if I see them that way, I can't do my job the way I was trained to do it, which to me translates into the fact that he couldn't see them as human beings. He couldn't get in touch with his own humanity because he had been trained to see them as other. And if we could humanize the whole process of incarceration and make it a rehabilitative uh, process, where everybody owned their humanity, everybody in there is serving time, whether they're all doing time, whether they're an officer or a resident. Yeah. It's a stressful environment. Susie, I so appreciate your call and your observations from being in there. And, and I think everybody could agree it's important to acknowledge the humanity of, of people who are behind bars. But Mayor Daryl Steinberg, you know, for, for many of the people who are incarcerated in California, you know, given the release programs and changes in sentencing, many of the people have 
serious and violent histories and um, don't have a lot of impulse control can within a moment prove to be a lethal risk to a corrections officer or to other inmates. So how does the fact that, yes, we're all human and that's important to treat people well, but there are differing degrees of threat, how is that incorporated into this? Well, changing the relationship between the correctional officer and the resident, the inmate, in a positive, more healthy way will enhance the the safety within the prisons. Because right now, the risk that you describe with the traditional uh, strict security model actually increases the the risk. It, It is exactly what the caller said she hit it right on the head that that the prisons will be safer this community will be safer if we are all working together to try to heal the people on the inside i want to um, uh, da- i'm sorry daryl steinberg we need to bring our our program to a close, but Mayor Steinberg of Sacramento, lead advisor to the San Quentin Transformation Advisory Council, and my thanks to James King, co-director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. He himself was incarcerated at San Quentin, released on parole in 2019. I want to thank our expert guests for joining us. Thank you for sharing your feedback with us. Stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.